Chapter Twenty of Seventeen. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jonathan Burchard, July two thousand nine. Seventeen by Booth Tarkington. Chapter Twenty. Sidney Carton. At the farmhouse where the party were to dine, Miss Pratt, with joy, discovered a harmonium in the parlor, and seating herself with all the girls, Floppet and Mister George Crooper gathered around her. She played an accompaniment while George, in a thin tenor of detestable sweetness, sang, I'm falling in love with someone. His performance was rapturously greeted, especially by the accompanist. Oh, wonderfulest Uncle Georgicum, she cried, for that was now the gentleman's name. If Johnny McCormick hear Uncle Georgicums, he go shoot himself dead. Bang! She looked round to where three figures hovered morosely in the rear. Turn on, sing chorus, Big Rudder Josie Joe, Johnny Jump Up, and Eagle Boy Baxter, all over a din, until Georgie comes, boys and girls all sing chorus. Timence! And so the heart-rending performance continued until it was stopped by Wallace Banks, the altruistic and perspiring youth who had charge of the subscription list for the party, and the consequent collection of assessments. This entitled Wallace to look haggard and to act as master of ceremonies. He mounted a chair. "'Ladies and gentlemen,' he bellowed, "'I want to say, that is, um, I am requested to announce that before dinner we're all supposed to take a walk around the farm and look at things, as this is supposed to be kind of a model farm or supposed to be something like that. There's a Swedish lady named Anna going to show us around. She's out in the yard waiting, so please follow her to inspect the farm. To inspect a farm was probably the least of William's desires. He wished only to die in some quiet spot, and to have Miss Pratt told about it in words that would show her what she had thrown away. But he followed with the others, in the wake of the Swedish lady named Anna, and as they stood in the cavernous hollow of the great barn, he found his condition suddenly improved. Miss Pratt turned to him unexpectedly and placed Floppet in his arms. "'Keep precious, Floppet, cozy,' she whispered. "'Floppet, love old friends best.' William's heart leaped, while a joyous warmth spread all over him, and though the execrable lummox immediately propelled Miss Pratt forward by her elbow to hear the descriptive remarks of the Swedish lady named Anna, William's soul remained uplifted and entranced. She had not said like, she had said, Flop it, love old friends best. William pressed forward valiantly, and placed himself as close as possible upon the right of Miss Pratt, the lummox being upon her left. A moment later, William wished that he had remained in the rear. This was due to the unnecessary frankness of the Swedish lady named Anna, who was briefly pointing out the efficiency of various agricultural devices her attention being diverted by some effusions of pride on the part of a passing hen. She thought fit to laugh and say, "'She just laid egg!' William shuddered. This grossness in the presence of Miss Pratt was unthinkable. His mind refused to deal with so impossible a situation. He could not accept it as a fact that such words had actually been uttered in such a presence, and yet it was the truth. His incredulous ears still sizzled, she just laid egg. His entire skin became flushed. His averted eyes glazed themselves with shame. He was not the only person shocked by the ribaldry of the Swedish lady named Anna. Joe Bullitt and Johnny Watson, on the outskirts of the group, 
went to Wallace Banks, drew him aside, and with feverish eloquence set his responsibilities before him. It was his duty, they urged, to have an immediate interview with this free-spoken Anna and instruct her in the proprieties. Wallace had been almost as horrified as they by her loose remark, but he declined the office they proposed for him, offering, however, to appoint them as a committee with authority in the matter, whereupon they retorted with unreasonable indignation, demanding to know what he took them for. Unconscious of the embarrassment she had caused in these several masculine minds, the Swedish lady named Anna led the party onward, continuing her agricultural lecture. William walked mechanically, his eyes averted and looking at no one, and throughout this agony he was burningly conscious of the blasphemed presence of Miss Pratt beside him. Therefore it was with no little surprise when the party came out of the barn that William beheld Miss Pratt, not walking at his side, but on the contrary, sitting too cosily with George Crooper upon a fallen tree at the edge of a peach orchard just beyond the barnyard. It was Miss Parcher who had been walking beside him, for the truant couple had made their escape at the beginning of the Swedish lady's discourse. In vain William murmured to himself, Flop, love, old friends best. Purple and black again descended upon his soul, for he could not disguise from himself the damnatory fact that George had flitted with the lady, while he, wretched William, had been permitted to take care of the dog. A spark of dignity still burned within him. He strode to the barnyard fence, and, leaning over it, dropped Floppet rather brusquely at his mistress's feet. Then, without a word, even without a look, William walked haughtily away, continuing his stern progress straight through the barnyard gate, and thence onward until he found himself in solitude upon the far side of a smoke-house, where his hauteur vanished. Here, in the shade of a great walnut tree which sheltered the little building, he gave way, not to tears, certainly, but to faint murmurings and little heavings under impulses as ancient as young love itself. It is to be supposed that William considered his condition a lonely one, but if all the seventeen-year-olds who had known such half-hours could have shown themselves to him then, he would have fled from the mere horror of the billions. Alas, he considered his sufferings a new invention of the world, and there was now inspired in his breast a monologue so eloquently bitter that it might deserve some such title as a passion beside the smoke-house. During the little time that William spent in this sequestration, he passed through phases of emotion which would have kept an older man busy for weeks and left him wrecked at the end of them. William's final mood was one of beautiful resignation with a kick in it. That is, he nobly gave her up to George and added irresistibly that George was a big fat lummox. Painting pictures, such as the billions of other young sufferers before him have painted, William saw himself a sad, gentle old bachelor at the family fireside, sometimes making the sacrifice of his reputation so that she and the children might never know the truth about George, and he gave himself the solace of a fierce scene or two with George. Remember, it is for them, not you, you thing. After this human little reaction, he passed to a higher field of romance. He would die for George, and then she would bring the little boy she had named William to the lonely headstone. Suddenly William saw himself in his true and fitting character, Sidney Carton. He had lately read A Tale of Two Cities, immediately re-reading until, as he would have said, he knew it by heart. And even at the time he had seen resemblances between himself and the appealing figure of Carton. Now that the sympathy between them was perfected by Miss Pratt's preference for another, William decided to mount the scaffold in place of George Crooper. 
The scene became actual to him, and setting one foot upon a tin milk pail which someone had carelessly left beside the smokehouse, he lifted his eyes to the pitiless blue sky and unconsciously assumed the familiar attitude of Carton on the steps of the guillotine. He spoke aloud those great last words. It is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to. A whiskered head on the end of a long, corrugated red neck protruded from the smokehouse door. What say? it inquired huskily. N -n Nothing, stammered William. Eyes above whiskers became fierce. You take your feet off that milk bucket. Say, this here's a sanitary farm. Ain't you got any more sense than to go and... But William had abruptly removed his foot and departed. He found the party noisily established in the farmhouse, as two long tables piled with bucolic viands already being violently depleted. Johnny Watson had kept a chair beside himself vacant for William. Johnny was in no frame of mind to sit beside any chattering girl, and he had protected himself by Joe Bullet upon his right and the empty seat upon his left. William took it and gazed upon the nearer foods with a slight renewal of animation. He began to eat. He continued to eat. In fact, he did well. So did his two comrades. Not that the melancholy of these three was dispersed. Far from it. With ineffaceable gloom, they ate chicken, both white meat and dark, drumsticks, wishbones, and livers. They ate corn on the cob, many ears, and fried potatoes and green peas and string beans. They ate peach preserves and apricot preserves and preserved pears. They ate biscuits with grape jelly and biscuits with crab-apple jelly. They ate apple sauce and apple butter and apple pie. They ate pickles, both cucumber pickles and pickles made of watermelon rind. They ate pickled tomatoes, pickled peppers, and also pickled onions. They ate lemon pie. At that, they were no rivals to George Crooper, who was a real eater. Love had not made his appetite ethereal today, and even the attending Swedish lady named Anna felt some apprehensions when it came to George and the gravy, though she was accustomed to the prodigies performed in this line by the robust hands on the farm. George laid waste his section of the table, and from the beginning he allowed himself scarce time to say, I don't know why it is. The pretty companion at his side at first gazed dumbfounded, then with growing enthusiasm for what promised to be a really magnificent performance, she began to utter little ejaculations of wonder and admiration. With this music in his ears, George outdid himself. He could not resist the temptation to be more and more astonishing as a heroic comedian, for these humors sometimes came upon vain people at country dinners. George ate when he had eaten more than he needed. He ate long after everyone understood why he was so vast. He ate on and on sheerly as a flourish, as a spectacle. He ate even when he himself began to understand that there was daring in what he did, for his was a toreador spirit, so long as he could keep bright eyes fastened upon him. Finally, he ate to decide wagers made upon his gorging, though at times during this last period his joviality deserted him. Anon, his damp brow would be troubled, and he knew moments of thoughtfulness. End of chapter 20